Please open your Bibles to Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2, this is on page 967 if you are using the Pew Bible. This morning's text will be verses 18 through 27. And as you turn there, I would remind you that as you hear the Word of God read, I would remind you of the words of Moses by which he addressed the Israelites before they crossed into the Promised Land. This is no empty word for you. This is your very life. Let's give ear now to God's Word. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and the vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you the abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Let us pray. Great God of heaven, we give thanks to you for the privilege that is ours in the hearing of your word. And I pray that these, your dear people, would always count it a privilege to hear your word read and preached, that they would know the love that you have for them. I ask as we consider the truths of your word this morning that that we would all see ourselves as your adopted children, as those who are pitied, protected, and provided for. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the great phenomenon in, in entertainment is that of the courtroom drama. We love to watch TV shows like People's Court or Judge Judy or even follow popular cases in the headlines. Some may remember the O.J. Simpson case or more recently that of Alex Murdoch. Our culture cannot get enough of following these stories. And like every good story, every case builds to a climactic conclusion. What will the verdict be? It is not the uh, sophisticated arguments that keep us dialed in, however interesting they may be. It is not the special testimony of experts and eyewitnesses, again, fascinating as they may be. No, we are anxious to hear the verdict. How will the jury rule? What will the judge say? And if you have ever been in court, even for something as small as a traffic ticket, you know well that nobody 
awaits that verdict on more pins and needles than the defendant. And this is the situation that the people of Judah are in as we approach our text this morning. The last time that I had the privilege to preach the morning service, we began this study of Joel. And we saw in the opening verses that Joel is writing in the, in the context of a terrible locust plague. And we see also in, in chapter 1, uh, verses 19 and 20, that it was not only locusts, but after the locusts, there was a great fire and then a drought. And, and Joel saw all of this as the plain result of God's judgment on his people. This is the judgment that Moses pronounced in Deuteronomy 28 on those who would break covenant with the Lord. This is also the judgment that Solomon alluded to in his great prayer at the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8. In one sense, the trial of God's people has already happened. They have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. But Joel's primary concern, as we have seen up to this day, is that there is yet a greater day of judgment coming, and the people are not ready. The locusts were merely a foreshadow of the coming day of the Lord that is great and very awesome, and none can endure it. And therefore, Joel's plea up through the first half of this book has been that God's people would repent and plead for mercy. That is their only option. Because at the day of the Lord, God himself is judge, he is jury, and he is also the offended party. This is not a good situation to be in. And the people of God are as guilty as the day is long. Their only hope is to plead for mercy. And I hope you realize that the words of Joel's prophecy are as true for us today as they were for his original audience. We are all getting closer and closer to the day of the Lord, where we will stand and we will eagerly await what does the judge say? And in that day, your only hope is to echo the words of David when he said, let us fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercy is great. That is our only argument. And that is our only plea. And in the previous passage, the Lord has, has summoned his people. He says in chapter 2 and verse 12, yet even now return to me. He has called them. And the priests and the ministers, they have, they have entered the plea in chapter 2 and verse 17. Oh, Lord, spare your people. And now we await the verdict. What will the judge say? And our passage this morning will provide the answer to that question as we examine it under three headings. There's a preamble in verse 18. There's a pronouncement in verses 19 to 23. And finally, there is a promise in verses 24 to, the, to 27. A preamble, a pronouncement, and a promise. First, the preamble in verse 18. And it's important to note at the outset the tense of these verbs in the Hebrew. They are what grammarians call prophetic perfects. And what that means is uh, that they are, they are future events that are not contingent on anything. They will certainly come to pass. It's as if, uh, as Douglas Stewart takes it, that the prophet has seen the future and he is reporting back what he saw happen. And in, in some cases, we'll be looking all the way to the last day. 
And this makes sense if you think about it. Joel has been warning the people of God what awaits them at the day of the Lord if they do not turn, if they do not repent. And now he tells them what awaits them since they have. And with that said, let's examine then this preamble. This verse is the turning point of the whole book. Uh, One scholar called it the thesis statement upon which the final section of the book hangs. Please look at it again with me. The Lord became jealous for his land and he had pity on his people. This verse is so important, not only for understanding the rest of Joel, it's certainly important for that, but it's also vital for our understanding of the gospel of grace. God's grace is, is built on these two pillars, his jealousy and his pity. That word jealous often brings to mind a negative connotation for us. It almost sounds beneath God to think of him as jealous. And that's why some of your translations may render it was zealous for his land. And that's perfectly fine. But I think jealousy is helpful if understood in context, if we understand it properly. Because we we tend to hear jealous and we think of maybe a small child who's jealous of the attention their sibling is getting that they believe is rightfully theirs. And so they whine and they cry and they complain about it. Or we may think of jealousy as a a co-worker resenting opportunities he felt ought to have been his, but they've been given to another. He feels he has a claim, a right to these things that he actually does not. And so we call that jealousy. But that understanding of the word will not fit for God. Because God has made all things. And therefore he owns all things. He cannot be jealous for that which is not rightfully his because it's all rightfully his. The psalmist would say in Psalm 89, the heavens are yours, the earth also is yours, the world and all that is in it. And then he tells us why. For you have founded them. You made it God and it is yours. So we cannot understand jealous in that sense. But notice what it says that he is jealous for. He is jealous for his land. He is jealous for his land, not all land generally. He's jealous for his land specifically. This is a covenant jealousy. This is a jealousy in the sense of a husband or a father that is jealous for the safety and protection of his family, and so he will rise up to thwart those who would do them harm. This is a fitting uh, example because that is how the Lord himself describes himself in all of Scripture. He is the husband of his people corporately. And he is the father of his children individually. The land is the initial promise that God makes to Abram all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 where he says, go from your country and your kindred and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. And he's speaking about far more than a geographic region. The land is a first fruits of the fullness of all that God would promise his people. The author of Hebrews makes this clear when he says that Abram was not looking for just a mere plot of land. He was rather looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And so when Joel says that the Lord became jealous for his land, he means far more than the earth. He means his covenant promises that are symbolized thereby. And why this is important for our understanding of the gospel is we need to know that the reliability of those promises, the reliability of any promise, does not depend on the person to whom it is made. The reliability of a promise depends on who made the promise. God's grace is shown to his people not according to what they have done or any merit that they have earned. 
He did not pull out a spreadsheet and evaluate your performance for the last quarter to determine whether or not to pay you grace. No, his grace is shown on account of his faithfulness, his zeal for his covenant promises. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And again, the author of Hebrews would add, When God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. He has bound himself by covenant both to this land and to this people, and he is zealous. He is jealous for his glory. He will not let it fall away. But secondly, we see not only is he jealous for the land, but he has pity on his people. Elsewhere, the Lord would look on his people and say, how can I give you up? How can I hand you over? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. This is what the Lord means when he says that he has pity on his people. He should punish them. We do not deserve his grace and kindness. And yet, as a parent looks on their child, he looks with pity. And this is so different from our natural way of thinking. Not long ago, I was having a conversation with one of my children, and we were talking about what it means to be a Christian and what it means to be part of the church. And so I asked my child, I said, do you believe these things about Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? My child said, sometimes, but other times I get sent to my room. And what's being betrayed in that answer is my child thinks that the status of their relationship with God is is built primarily on their obedience. Obedience must come. I'm not denying that. But that is not the pillar on which it is based. It's based on God's love. What would it change about your outlook on life if you knew that you had a heavenly father who was unable to break a single promise that he has made to you. He is not able to break his promises. Now, we have to bear in mind that the fulfillment and answering those promises very well may take a different form than what we expect. And sometimes we will even have to wait until glory, but not a single one of them will fail. But more than that, what would it change if you not only believe that God is unable to break his promises, but that even if he could, he wouldn't. He doesn't want to. He delights to show pity to his people. What would that do to our sense of anxiety, our sense of impending guilt? Yes, we should feel guilty when we sin, but we should also be assured that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Joel wants the people to know this before God pronounces his his verdict. He wants them to know his kind and loving and gentle disposition towards his children. And so he gives the pronouncement in two parts. Verses 19 and 20 say what God will do. And then verses 21 to 23, what we are to do. The Lord vows to do two things. First, he says, Behold, I am sending you grain, wine, and oil. And in an earlier study, we saw that these are are the very elements that the Lord had cut off from his people. Chapter 1 and verse 10 says, The grain is destroyed, the wine dries up, the oil languishes. 
And the significance is these elements were the provisionary means by which they were able to worship God, by which they were able to dwell with him, by which they were able to enter his presence, and he has cut them off. Dwayne Garrett put it well. When these were cut off by an act of Yahweh, it was as though the covenant were annulled and the daily order of creation was suspended. But the sending of them is a powerful reminder that they indeed are still the people of God, those who have come back in repentance and faith. And the second thing that God vows to do is found in verse 20. He vows that not only will he have pity on his people, but he will protect them. He says, I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. Now, the identity of this northerner is the source of much debate amongst the commentators. And there's generally three candidates on which people land. It, it could be the locusts of the original plague. Contextually, a strong case can be made for that. It could be uh, another invading force that is yet to come, such as Syria or Babylon. And of course, historically, those events did happen, and there's a case that can be made there. Thirdly, and I would say least likely, it could be the eschatological army of the Lord that he was talking about earlier in chapter 2. It should be noted that due to the geography of the region, any invading force, any enemy of God's people that would come to Jerusalem would have to come from the north. And therefore, northerner does not necessarily entail a place of origin, but it's a, it's a reference to enemy. The, the, the word had come to mean at this point, northerner is bad guy. And some of you may be thinking, not much has changed. But whatever, uh, whatever is meant by this term, we would do well to, to heed the advice of, of James Boyce, who points out that very likely all three of these are in view. Nevertheless, what Joel is saying is that God will keep all enemies away and that he will throw up a hedge of protection around his people. And what a joyful thing that is to, to be a Christian and to know the protection of our Heavenly Father. This is well captured in the words to the answer to the first question, the Heidelberg Catechism. He watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head apart from the will of my Heavenly Father. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. We are not given over into the enemy's hands. There may be affliction, there may be trials, but they are ultimately in the hand of God. He watches over and cares for his people. This is the very thing that we pray for in the Lord's Prayer when we say, deliver us from evil. And in Joel chapter 2, verse 20, God vows, I will. What a great reminder this is also for us to remember that the northerner, whoever that may be, when the people of Judah tried to stand against them on their own, they were crushed. They were left desolate. They were without hope. But God says, I will remove the northerner far from you. And this is a great encouragement and a great thing to remember in your own spiritual warfare. With your own enemies that seek to conquer you. Whatever sin you may be struggling with, be it, be it pride or anger, or the, the commandment this morning was the seventh commandment, if you're wrestling with lust... Know that if you try and combat that on your own, that sin will sift you like wheat. It will beat you like a rug. I'm not saying don't make wise uh, provisions. 
especially if you struggle with the sin of lust and pornography and something like that. Put the software on your computer, get an accountability partner, do all of that. But know that ultimately deliverance from sin comes from God alone. And so our first resource, our chief resource, is prayer and communing with him in Scripture, being transformed by the renewing of our minds as we read God's Word. It almost sounds too simple. Pray and read your Bible. And yet those are the very means that God has said he will bless and by which he will change and renew his people. If we will give ourselves to them, he will do wondrous things for our, for our sake. That then is the first part of God's verdict, what he will do. And it is followed by three sharp imperatives in verses 21 to 23, telling the people of Judah what they are to do. And it's interesting to note that God speaks not only to them, but he speaks to the created order. He addresses the land in verse 21, and the beasts in verse 22, and then finally the children of Zion in 23. What's going on here is that in God's redemption of mankind, of his people, he's also redeeming the created order. Paul would put it this way in the glorious eighth chapter of his letter to the Romans. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now as we eagerly await the adoption as sons. See, when God says to the land and to the beasts those precious words, fear not, he's saying, I'm not going to lose anything to the fall. I will redeem all things. He's assuring us that he has not forgotten even the smallest detail. Because he did not say this for the land's sake. Land doesn't have a conscious mind. It can't hear. It doesn't understand. It's not sentient. Animals are not rational creatures. He did not say this for their sake. He said it for us. So that we would know not one of the smallest details would be lost in his work of redemption. It's it's along the lines of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. And if God so clothes the grass of the field, will he not much more clothe you? And then to the children of Zion, he says emphatically in verse 23, Be glad and rejoice in the Lord your God. What a precious thing it is that God makes gladness and joy our duty. What a wonderful God we serve. And he does not just sternly say, be glad, period. No, he always attaches a reason. And in this verse, he gives us uh, one that might be peculiar at first. He says, be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the early rain for your vindication. And that line is by far the most difficult to translate in this entire passage. Most major Bible translations will say something essentially the same as what the ESV says here, that, that picturing that Joel is telling the people, uh, be glad because God is giving you the rain as a sign of the renewal of your relationship. And I have no doubt that that is certainly part of what Joel has in mind here. The the rain is definitely a sign of God's blessing to his people, especially in the Old Testament. That's certainly there. But many translations, our ESV excluded, do put a footnote on that verse for an alternative rendering. And that alternative rendering is, Be glad and rejoice, for he has sent you a teacher of righteousness. The Hebrew word that's used here, that's two most common glosses, are early rain and teacher. That may sound strange to you because how could one word mean such radically different things? But there's actually a close association of these two ideas in the Old Testament. 
Consider, for example, Isaiah chapter 30. Isaiah writes, Your teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes will see your teacher, and he will give you rain. Isaiah 30, 20 to 23. And this is seen throughout the minor prophets where, for example, Amos would compare the absence of God's word, the absence of instruction to what? A drought, the absence of rain. But very interesting to our purposes is is the use of these two terms in Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple. He prays, when heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin... This is where Joel sees the people. They were under judgment for their sin. They have turned. What does Solomon pray would happen? Then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the way to go and grant rain on your land. There's a close association of these two terms in the Old Testament. And given the prophet's propensity for double meaning and the closeness of these two terms, it's likely he had both in mind. But I would argue the primary one he has in mind is the latter, the teacher of righteousness. This is the understanding of most early Jewish uh, commentators. This is also the understanding of most early church fathers. And if it's correct, then the messianic implications are clear. At the very heart of this passage about God's grace towards his wayward sinful people stands the teacher of righteousness, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one that makes all of this possible. He is the one that makes it work. And Joel says, be glad because I am sending you the teacher of righteousness. And at that time, that was future. But we get to look back and say, he has come. And we get to be glad We get to be glad that he came and humbled himself that he might live the perfect sinless life that you and I were called to live and have failed. We can be glad. And that he kept the fullness of the law, not only in his obedience, but also taking the curse of the law that you and I have earned and drinking it to the dregs, and we can be glad. And this teacher of righteousness then, he poured out his Holy Spirit on the church, of which we will read in our next passage, Lord willing. And what does that Holy Spirit do? He leads us into all truth. He leads us back to our teacher of righteousness. He brings to mind all things that he has said. What you need this morning more than anything is to know this teacher of righteousness. How do you do that? Well, you all are off to a good start. You're here to worship him. You're here to hear from his word. Tomorrow is New Year's Day, and many Christians will start a Bible in a year reading plan. Join them. Commune with the teacher of righteousness as he is revealed in his word. And perhaps you've tried this thing before. You've tried to read the whole Bible in 365 days, and it has not gone well, usually around Leviticus. Do it anyway. You miss a day, pick it up tomorrow. Try not to miss a day. If the whole thing seems daunting, know that there is no chapter and verse that your preacher can point to and say, you must read the entirety of it in the course of one rotation around the sun. There are smaller plans. The the ESV Bible app has several 10-day reading plans that are focused studies on one book. Do one of those. Do a 90-day plan through the New Testament. You can do this. Commune with your teacher of righteousness. Read it faithfully. Read it systematically every day. 
And oh, the things that he will do as you grow in his grace and knowledge. And with that pronouncement of grace and that call to be glad, we now see the promises that God attaches to this in the last portion of our text. And it's important to note that these promises, these blessings that we're going to talk about, cannot be separated from the Lord Jesus himself. He is the blessing, and these come along with it. Our God promises his children that he will pity them in forgiving their sin. He promises that he will protect them in the removal of their enemies, and he promises that he will provide for them. And he will provide not in some meagerly pittance. No, he will provide lavishly and abundantly. Look at verse 24. He says, The threshing floor shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. It's not just a little bit of blessing. It's almost more than we can handle. We're close friends with a family back in Richmond. And a few years ago, they sent their oldest daughter away to college for the first time. They sent her to Bob Jones, and so my wife and I were able to maintain a pretty good relationship. And she told us after she got back to campus from her first trip home that it was almost too much. Her, her mom had, had bought every trinket, every, every snack, everything that she saw that reminded her of her daughter. It, it was as if every time she went to the store, she saw something new that reminded her of the daughter, the child that she missed so dearly, and she knew she had to get it for her. My friends... God is much like this to his children who have been away. When we come back, he wants to lavish blessing upon us. But you may wonder, what about that time that I was away? What about those lost years that the locust has eaten? Are they gone forever? Verse 25 gives us the answer. I will restore to you the years that the locust has eaten. How sweet must those words have been in the ears of Joel's original hearers. They had lost everything. They had lost everything. And it was their fault. They deserved to lose it. And God says, I will Restore it to you. Now that they've seen the error of their ways, now that they've come back pleading his mercy, he will restore it. Full atonement can it be? Asks the hymn writer to which we say yes. And full redemption. God will not lose a single thing. What a Savior indeed. The promise this verse makes The promise of this verse makes sense of the words of Psalm 30 and verse 5 that says, Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. There are certainly temporal consequences for sin in this life. And we weep over those consequences just as David did over the consequences of his sin with Bathsheba. Nevertheless, I tell you, on the authority of this passage, you may have joy because God promises to restore to you the full of what was lost due to your folly and sin and the folly and sin of others in your life. Are you here this morning with great regret over lost years? Perhaps you came to the Lord later in life and you spent years, in fact decades, living for the sensual pleasures of this world. 
And you think back on, on all the missed opportunities and how much better it could have been, and you think it's gone. Or maybe you've been in the pews of this church your whole life, and you've been utterly passive in your Christian walk, and you have not pursued the things of God, and you have not pursued the, the renewal of your soul. And you're coming to maturity now, and you think of all that time that was lost, and, and what can be done about that? It's right that we lament over those lost years. And it's right to resolve to do better with the time that we have left. But we also remember that the Lord promises one day, I will restore to you the years that the locust has eaten. The great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon said it so well. You cannot have back your time. But there is a strange and wonderful way in which God can give back to you the wasted blessings, the unripened fruits of the years over which you mourned. The fruits of wasted years may yet be yours. God, by giving you larger grace in the present and in the future, can make the life which has hitherto been blighted and eaten up with the locusts yet a complete and blessed and useful life. It is a great wonder, he says. But Jehovah is a God of wonders. And in, the, in his kingdom, the grace of miracles is no uncommon thing. He also adds, for those who may think this is too good to be true, this sounds too good to be true, is anything too hard for our God? Does not the difficulty, yea, impossibility of the tax more commend it to our sovereign Lord? Here is a marvelous thing. And they work fit for him who doth great marvels. You may experience the redemption of those years in a number of ways. God's kindness may show them to you even in this life. Perhaps you had a difficult relationship with your parents growing up. And God restores those years by giving you a healthy relationship with your own children. Perhaps you have suffered great loss and hardship. And, and you see the redemption and the grace of God by coming along someone else later who has suffered that same hardship and comforting them with the comfort with which you yourself were comforted. And maybe you don't see it in this life. But one day in glory, you will. It will be on that day to borrow an expression from Tolkien as if everything sad has come untrue. And when, when, they, when we have seen then God's pity for his people, seen his protection, and we've considered his, his wonderful provision of a savior and full redemption. But there is one last promise that we need to look at. And it's the very last verse of our text. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else and my people shall never again be put to shame. This is the greatest promise of all. This is the promise that the entirety of the Bible is built around, that Jehovah, the Lord, desires to be with his people. This is what Adam and Eve lost in the garden when once they had known the joy of walking with the Lord in the cool of the day. And then because of sin, they ran and hid. This is the promise that is symbolized in the days of Moses by the erecting of the tabernacle, that God would pitch tent and dwell with his people. This is the promise of which the Apostle John wrote. The word became flesh 
and dwelt among us. This is the promise that you and I enjoy to some measure now with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But it is the promise that we will enjoy in the full at the day of the Lord. When we will hear the loud cry from the throne, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and God will be with them as their God, and they will be his people. We enjoy the presence of the Lord, and that is what we have to look forward to, because on that day, you know, we tend to maybe think of, of that day as the Lord, yes, we'll, we'll see him, but he's high on the throne and he's far away, but we'll, we'll be at the party. No, you will be with him. Because he says, I will wipe away every tear from your eyes. How close do you have to be to someone for them to wipe the tears from your eyes? You will be with him, and there will be no more death, and there will be no more pain and mourning and suffering for the former things have passed away, and he is making all things new. This is the promise of our God. This is the provision that he longs to lavish upon us. A few years ago, there was a municipal judge in Rhode Island named Frank Caprio, and he went viral online for his compassionate verdicts. Perhaps you've seen some of, the pe- some of these videos. And, and people long to hear the words of this gentle and compassionate judge, and, and they marvel at his warmth of heart. And I'm not here to beat him up or say he was bad or something like that. But I do want to point out that people long to hear a gracious verdict from a judge. And, and, and Frank Caprio, the best he can do is knock down some of the penalty. Maybe reduce a fine here or there. How much better is our God? How much better things do we have to look forward to? Our covenant Lord who pardons our sins for the sake of Christ's atoning death. Who accounts us as righteous and holy for his righteousness credited to us. And he promises that you will surely dwell in the house of the Lord forever. My friend, Jesus said, in my Father's house there are many rooms... And if you are here today and you are believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and receiving and resting upon him alone for salvation, one of those rooms is for you. This is what we have to look forward to. And in the meantime, while we wander in this pilgrim wandering, know that you are pitied, protected, and provided for. Let us pray. God in heaven, We give thanks to you for the sweet promises of your word. And would you, by your spirit, help us to believe these precious things that almost sound too good to be true. We believe, Lord, but help thou our unbelief. Help us to look for the day of Christ's return. Help us to look for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, our blessed hope, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.